Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds, and I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hello. Deep exhale. I know. I'm like, <laughs> inhale, exhale. <laughs> I know. Do we need to do, you know, those like um, gifts that like, you know, sink your breath with this shape. I feel like we maybe should do like an inhale, exhale moment. <laughs> That's so real. That's so real. In audio format. Yeah. <sighs> I'm only laughing so I don't cry. This week has been a lot. I recently have been thinking about the fact that when I was a kid, I noticed that my grandmother would sigh all the time, like just, you know, involuntarily, like uh, at, at random points. And I just, I mean, I noticed it because she was the only person in my life who was doing that. And I think I have fully become her just like <sighs> multiple times yeah, an I hour. <laughs> sigh all the time. Um, well, let's sigh no longer um what are we what are we tackling today uh so today's agenda is talking about all of the things happening in this intense and difficult moment by revisiting some conversations that we had with experts and activists who have been working on these issues long before the fall of 2020. In other words, people who are not like, oh no, this is a crisis right now, but but people who kind of take like a long and productive view to the kinds of problems that are happening right now. And you're right. We are engulfed in a couple of different crises. There is a hundred percent a caregiving crisis that is happening right now that is squeezing families, communities, and individuals who take care of other people. Police violence is in the spotlight in a more intense way than it usually is. There is a huge divide between people who work an hourly wage and people who have salaried jobs. And that divide is just yawning um, even wider and wider. And, you know, on top of all of that, we have an election coming up in November where we have real, real, real concerns about um, the future of American democracy. So I'm feeling stressed. How are you feeling? Ugh. I mean, I know we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about like these being precedented times. And like, that is one thing I really cling to. You know, there are experts who have recognized that all this stuff has been at a crisis point long before. I feel better, actually, when I hear from people who are really steeped in one aspect of this like, multi headed Greek demon crisis that is happening right now. I don't even know what kind of like folkloric demon I'm talking about, but like, I don't know. It just feels like just huge and unapproachable. And so I think this little dip into our, our archives is meant to break it down a little bit. And so our first interview of a series is with Ai-jen Poo, who is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-host of a podcast we love called Sunstorm. And in this clip, she's talking about domestic work and workers and the fact that, um, you know, these jobs have always been precarious, but, you know, now we know that they have become even more so. And iGen has some thoughts about how we can all support workers in jobs like this 
And so, yeah, so here she is from an interview we did with her in 2018. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start with just kind of like getting on the same page definition wise. Um, When you use the term domestic work, what are we talking about and who are we talking about? We're basically talking about anybody who works in someone else's home doing cleaning or caregiving. So it's house cleaners, it's nannies, it's home care workers who take care of the elderly or support people with disabilities. That whole workforce that does the work that makes everything else possible, making it possible for us to go out into the world and do what we do every day, but is hidden behind the closed doors of our private homes. And it's Uh, more than 90% women, disproportionately women of color, uh, black and immigrant women. And it's the fastest growing occupation in our entire economy. In fact, home care workers who take care of the elderly in the private home are the single fastest growing occupation in our entire workforce because the need for care is so great. And I have my own like feminist guesses, but why are these professions so disproportionately women and women of color? Well, I would say that this work of caregiving and cleaning, family care, doing the kind of invisible, unrecognized work that makes everything else possible has historically been associated with women, really kind of seen as women's work, and then as a profession, really associated with women of marginalized social status, black women under slavery, and immigrant women throughout history, native women. So as a profession, it's really been racialized in such a way where it's the kind of least visible, most vulnerable women in our economy really occupying this work. Talk about some of the challenges that you faced in organizing workers in domestic professions. Well, what's so interesting is that, I mean, if you think about it, you could go into any neighborhood or apartment building and not know which homes are also somebody's workplace. Right. right. There's no registry. There's no list anywhere. It's not like you go around the neighborhood and there's a sign that says somebody works here and not at all. Right. And in a lot of cases, um, you're really the only person who knows that you work there. If you think about a house cleaner who cleans for 10 different houses, does her family even know all the different houses that she works at? I'm not sure. Right. So there's just a level of invisibility and disaggregation where just workers are everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And then there's this really long history that a lot of people don't know about where when our nation's labor laws were put into place, including the really foundational pieces of the National Labor Relations Act, which gave workers the right to organize and collectively bargain, and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which established a minimum wage, those two core pillars of our labor laws explicitly exclude domestic workers and farm workers who, at the time these laws were passed, were mostly black women, black workers, and Southern members of Congress refused to support these labor laws if domestic workers and farm workers were included. So to this day, a lot of those exclusions remain in our labor laws. So a lot of the stuff that you and I take for granted when we go to work every day, domestic workers have never been protected. And so 
there's just between the isolation and the disaggregation and the invisibility and the, this like historic and repeated structural exclusion from actual protections, it just makes for a really interesting organizing challenge for sure. <laughs> God, yeah. And it's something that I've been thinking about as I think there continues to be a growing conversation about what are sometimes called 1099 workers or temp workers or, you know, people who work doing the service end of a lot of like really profitable startup companies, Mm -hmm. right? And what's really interesting to me is like watching sometimes how those things are framed as like new trend. And then I think about this work that you're doing and the history that you describe. (laughs) And it's like, actually, like maybe the demo or like the type of framing has changed. But this is not like, oh, we're suddenly in a new era of people who are not enjoying what we what we like to think are fundamental labor protections. Right. No, it's it's such a good observation. We call domestic workers the original gig economy workers for this very reason. Yes. I mean basically like when I first started organizing domestic workers in the 1990s, it was kind of seen as this sort of interesting an exotic thing where like there are these workers kind of working at the margins of the economy and like, ooh, what's going on in the, the shadows, right? And today, when I look around, the conditions that define domestic work are long hours, low wages, unpredictable hours, lack of control mm. over your hours, lack of access to any kind of benefits or a safety net, lack of job security, lack of career pathways, right? Those characteristics or qualities that define domestic work increasingly define work for more and more American workers. Like this is what's become the future of work for so many and the so-called non-traditional or informal, right? There are all these words that economists have used to talk about this work. It's, It's more and more the norm. And so we do believe that domestic work has, and domestic workers and our movement, we have a lot to teach workers in 21st century America as a whole about how we change, how we shape the future of work in a way that actually works for everyone. Next up, we have a friend of the pod and journalist Annie Lowry, who's the author of the book Give People Money on Universal Basic Income and Why Poverty Does Not Need to Exist. Since Congress seems poised to not send out more of those $1,200 stimulus checks, we are all finding ourselves thinking about what the country would look like if we provided guaranteed income all the time. Here is Annie in an interview from 2018. Hi, Annie Lowry. Thanks for coming on Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you so much for having me, Amina. I am so excited to be here. I mean, I I am super excited. You have a new book called Give People Money, How Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Um, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a big ideas book. It's a It's a book about revolutionary ideas. So we have these big promises in there. 
You're one of the most impressive people we know, so obviously uh, the title is very apt. <laughs> um, for the people who do not know, can you explain and call your girlfriend Ease what UBI is? Absolutely. So UBI is universal basic income. So the idea is that everybody in a given country would get something like a social security payment. So right now you get social security if you are at retirement age and you have paid in in the United States. You need to have performed a certain amount of work and paid FICA, which is payroll taxes, and then you get a you know a monthly sum after that, like sort of a fixed monthly sum. And so the idea here is that everybody in the U.S., there's some debate, right? All citizens, all citizens plus permanent residents. Would it just be adults? Would it be adults plus kids? But some huge number of people, some universal number of people would get like $500 or $1,000 a month. No questions asked. Do whatever you want with the money. And so that's the simple radical proposal. I mean, I'm from Africa, so UBI sounds really cool to me because it's already at work in places like in the Great Lakes region. You know, giving people actual money to end poverty is, uh, it sounds like very simple and normal. But over here, it people are kind of freaking out that it's communism. Absolutely. And what's kind of hilarious about that is people are like, oh, this is socialism or this is communism. And not to be like a patronizing nudge about it, but it really isn't, right? Like nobody is talking about like the state taking over industries here. This actually works really comfortably in a capitalist system. It's just that, you know, you're taxing more and you're you're spending more, right? But you're really right to point out that this is not such a crazy idea in lower and middle income countries, more than 100 of them have either unconditional or conditional cash transfer programs, which are hugely effective at alleviating poverty. So I think in in countries where there's less stigma around poverty because there's more of it, there's more of a sense of just like, all right, you want to get people out of poverty, you give them cash. Voila, they're out of poverty. Whereas here we have this very stigmatized, judgmental conversation about the reasons for poverty, how much is it an individual thing? How much of it is a social thing? And so we have these really judgmental anti-poverty programs, and we're much more uncomfortable with just giving people cash, which we know is, like, it sounds so tautological and so ridiculous. We know it's one of the most effective ways to get people out of poverty. You have pointed this out before, too, that all sorts of people get government assistance, right? It just depends, like, how you want to qualify it. Like, if you have a mortgage, you're definitely getting government assistance of some sort. Yeah. If you benefit from the SNAP program, which is essentially what people call food stamps, you are also getting government assistance. So the stigma just depends on, like, what class level you are at. Yeah, absolutely. So there's really amazing research by a political scientist at Cornell named Suzanne Mettler. And so she asks people across the income spectrum whether they benefit from government programs. And so high-income folks are really likely to say, no, I don't. But those people absolutely do. It's just that the programs that they're benefiting from are not really cash programs. They're run through the tax code. And so they're sort of subsumed, right? And so, you know, but then, you know, you look and and they're benefiting from all sorts of things, right? The 529 college savings plan, the home mortgage interest deduction, all sorts of different giveaways. And the government designs those so that they don't seem like welfare, right? It's just, oh, we're just letting you keep more of your money. But in an accounting sense, 
sense, that's not different than the government giving you money. They're just happening to do it by lowering your tax burden as opposed to sending you a check. Whereas if you look at low-income folks, they tend to benefit from not insurance or tax incentive programs, but welfare programs. And they're very well aware that they're benefiting from them because those programs are blunt and obvious, right? We are sending you this money, but you have to do these things in return. You know, so if you ask them if they benefit from government programs, they say yes. And so this is one of the ways that our entire system of social insurance and social welfare is designed to be punitive and judgmental towards poor people and to be invisible towards rich people, to give them more choice over their decisions, to say it's, you know, kind of happens invisibly for them and lets them think that they are not beneficiaries when they really are. <laughs> well, ooh, girl, say it louder for the people in the back. How does UBI work? How much money are we talking? How long does it last? Who is going to pay for it? So I think that the lowest hanging fruit, the most moral thing that we could do for the biggest bang for the buck would be to eliminate child poverty. It feels ridiculous even saying this. The United States has truly abhorrent levels of child poverty. We ensure that we do not eliminate child poverty in any of our welfare programs or our tax programs. You know, it's just, it's hard not to talk about it without getting angry about it. We could do this really cheaply, right? We just spent $80 billion more on our military. One in five kids in the United States grows up in poverty. Through something like a universal child grant, that number could be zero next year without raising a single dollar of taxes. That's wild. It's infuriating, actually. It's disgusting. I, <laughs> I don't know what else to say I, about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm like, we're, we're, building, <laughs> we're building a space for us, but kids are hungry. Okay. Yep. Yeah, you talk about solvable policy problems. There's lots of policy problems we don't really know how to solve. This one is not one of them. This is easy. And so then, similarly, though, you know, just eliminating poverty entirely through the tax code with something called a negative income tax costs something like 200 or $400 billion a year. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that's not a lot of money, but compared to what our government spends, it's really not. <laughs> you know, it's easy to either raise that through the tax code or, frankly, just to reallocate it from elsewhere. But then— the, the really grand idea of UBI is that we're providing a universal form of social insurance. And we're saying that if you got the luck of the draw to be born an American, the richest society that the planet has ever known, we're just not going to let you fall back to destitution. We're going to give you that boost and that bump. Even doing that, that really big, grandest idea, <laughs> it's not crazy, right? Like our taxes would come in line with Europe's. Um, they would have to change a lot, but I that's just that's socialism, Annie. We uh, don't want it. Remember, no, it's that's still what capitalism. we don't want. We don't want to be Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, let's do real social. Let's go like take over important industries. Let's just like go to Wall Street and be like, surprise! You're all public businesses. You're all worker-owned collectives now. Wow. I feel like we need to like King, expand King Annie, the Overton nationalizing window. everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Take over well, the airlines. <laughs> <laughs> like Yale University, you're now a public institution. We need somebody to come out and do this so that people will stop calling things that aren't socialism, socialism. Right. It's like, let's do real socialism one time and then you people will shut up about it. It's nuts. Well, you know, one of the things that you've also like written about and touched on that that was kind of like really eye opening for me, honestly, was this intersection of feminism and UBI. Yeah. Something that I was like, oh, feminist policy, tell me more about it. 
Yeah, and I know this is, you know, a topic near and dear to the podcast's heart, but we have a system that, yeah, has led to the economic empowerment of how many millions of women, and especially now young women in some ways are doing better than young men, right? Like they're improving their educational credentials uh, at higher rates, but you still have a system that is punishing to women and to parents, and therefore especially to women, though certainly not exclusively. And so women do the lion's share of the uncompensated care work in this economy, taking care of parents, taking care of sick friends, taking care of children. And so that that work, we actually can assign an economic value to it, and that value is in the trillions of dollars. And it's an economic utility, right? The economy does not function without the care work that is predominantly done by women. You mean we don't do it out of the kindness of our hearts? Like there's actually like being being a caregiver or something you can put a value on? Yeah, and it's important, right? And, and we can assign a value to it. But economists have known, and this is also to a certain extent, it's just obvious, right, that, that you're not counting it and therefore it doesn't show up in the national accounts. And, you know, it's just performed invisibly, right? It's discounted. And so UBI is kind of a way of providing social recognition for that and a way of saying that that work has value and a way of empowering not just women but all people to do more of it, right? Like what if, uh, you know, or a parent or a family member got sick and it wasn't a given that the woman who in a partnership might be earning less was the one to go ahead and take care of it. What if that family or that household or, you know, whatever, even that uh, group of people living together instead got to make a choice about who did that? And there's a cliff around, it depends on where you are, but around 13 or $15 an hour. If you're not making more than that, then it often makes more sense for you to drop out of the labor force to perform care work. And, um, you know, we've known about that, but we haven't done enough to boost women's wages um, so that they can make that decision uh, with more freedom, right? So feminists for a long time have talked about this as sort of a way of reorienting the whole economy and, you know, by extension, the whole society around a recognition that your work is valuable even if it's not paid. (laughs) Let's take a little break. Next up, we have Josie Duffy Rice on why abolishing police and prisons is a feminist issue, how she's been thinking about this and framing it for a long time, and how we can focus on taking action to change the system, which is honestly so large and so entrenched. Josie is one of our very favorite experts and humans. She is co-host of the Justice in America podcast and president of The Appeal, which produces news and commentary on how policy, politics, and the legal system affect America's most vulnerable people. Um, Here she is uh, talking to us in 2018. 
we talk a lot on our show about issues that women should know about, right? Right. They should be active in advocating for and should really be paying attention to. Uh I was wondering if, like, you could guide us in discussing issues where, you know, like, women's issues and the criminal justice system overlap that you think are really under-discussed. Yeah. We have an audience that, like, cares about this stuff and can... and, And I will say that, like, in my own life, even finding out, you know, like, something as small as... or small to me, at least as knowing that, you know, their programs to, like, bail out moms during Mother's right, Day right, right. was something that, you know, like, was something that I, like, I felt so dumb and, you know, like, self-absorbed that it's something that I had never thought about. Right, right, right. And and have seen, like, firsthand the difference that it makes in people's right, lives. Right, so right, right, right. I'm just, like, yeah. curious about if you, like, issues that, like, you deal with in your work that you wish that more people knew about in that intersection. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great question, and I think there are a lot, I think, to your point about like stuff you hadn't yet thought about, I do this stuff day in and day out, and there's so daily I'm like, oh my gosh, I had never actually thought of that as a solution. I had never really understood that was a problem. So that's kind of um, the joy and the tragedy of this work. You're always learning new things. Um, but there are so many issues that disproportionately affect women right now, and I think. The, so fundamentally, right, we send a lot of women to prison, and we send a lot more women to prison than we ever have. In the past 40 years, the number of prison women in prison has um, has grown by 800%. And in a lot of places, they're the re- most rapidly growing population going to prison, um, being involved in the criminal justice system. They're more likely to go for a drug offense than men are. We're filling prisons and jails with women. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that um, women are an integral part of this system no matter who's in prison, right? And there's an organization called uh, mm-hmm. called SE Justice. It's run by this incredible woman, Gina Clayton. And what SE Justice really um, focuses on is women with incarcerated loved ones. What Gina has really identified, which I think is very important, is that like when we talk about bail, for example, who's paying the bail of someone in prison? Probably a woman, probably the mom, the girlfriend, you know, the niece, the sister. These women carry the weight of the system in such a way that is so um, pervasive. When men are being sent to prison at these astronomical rates like they have been for the past few decades, these are women who are now are working two jobs to take care of their kids. Women who are now yeah. taking in, you know, their grandkids when their son goes to prison. For 90% of men who go to prison who have children, their children are taken care of by either the children's mother or a grandmother of the children. So a woman wow. is taking care of those children. When a mother goes to prison, only 25% of the time is that child taken care of by their father primarily. Most of the time, they're also, you know, being taken care of by another woman in the family. So you see it left and right that, like, women are kind of carrying the load of the system. Another thing we see all the time is women who have their children taken away from them for small offenses, who lose custody of their kids because they um, were caught with drugs or because low-level theft or because they are in jail and they can't pay their bail and so they're not home with their children and then they're charged with neglect. Their children are taken from them, maybe put in foster care. Someone else gets um, custody. You see the separation of families. We talk about it all the time in the immigration context, which obviously matters so much. It happens daily here with women whose children are being taken from them for small small 
offenses. In fact, I don't know if you remember the story a couple months ago of um, the six kids in, I think it was California, who... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was California. Yeah, who were adopted. And their their adopted mothers drove them over a cliff and killed the entire family. Three of those children were siblings who had grown up in Houston for for the beginning of their lives and their mother had some cocaine offense you know some cocaine charges on her record and she lost custody of her kids her kids were adopted by this family that obviously was not monitored with the same kind of vigilance that she was monitored right, or with. actually you know but the thing about the story that is actually fascinating is that they were monitored the police was like called the, right, you know right they they had they had had a lot of contact with the system right. for multiple offenses right but the difference is that those kids are black right. and the women who adopted are, them are white. white. Exactly. And so exactly. The, the, the consequence was, right. you know, for having contact with the system right. was very different for both, totally. of, like, for both of the parties. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that, that woman's kids are dead now because she, has some, she had some cocaine charges. I mean, it's kind of hard to even imagine. Yeah. You see it all the time with women who test positive for drugs while they're pregnant, which can happen for various reasons, often because they're not getting the services they need uh, to address their addiction. They lose custody of their children once they're born, usually. And then not only that, they're often sentenced to you know, up to a decade, a decade and a half in prison for testing positive in a drug test while they were pregnant. Well, so listen, you like, I feel like you and I know the answer to this, right? Right. But what is the answer that you tell somebody who says, well, those women have drugs in their system and they should not have their children? Right. Because that is the simplistic way of looking at it. But unfortunately, a lot of people think that, including people who I would say think of themselves as very progressive people. Right. I would say that the answer to that is that it's typically more complicated than that. But that on the front end, right, these women don't have the services or the care that they need to address their addiction. So you don't get pregnant and stop, you know, being addicted to opioids. It doesn't happen. Um, And so if you can't actually address your opioid addiction, if you don't have a system that's willing to help you figure out what the best path forward for you is as a pregnant woman who has this addiction, but the only answer to your problem is the punishment and the consequences in, then this is never going to be a solvable problem, right? It just is never going to be a solvable problem. The other thing is that, like, the reality is that, like, most of, a lot of these children whose parents test positive at some point for drug use, the impact that that has on a child, I know that that sounds crazy to say it might not even have an impact on the child, but the reality is that like we're drawing a connection to their ability to love and care for their child um, mm-hmm. from something that is is not a direct correlation. So we don't always know, you know, often the ch- there are no signs of um, withdrawal needed f- from the child once they're born, or often this happened at the very beginning of a pregnancy. Right. The larger point is that, like, again, it's about paternalism, right? right? And it is that we we have decided that there are decisions that the state exactly. can make for certain exactly. people if they are a certain race or if they right. are a, from a certain class or a certain socioeconomic background. And the state has not earned it. That, 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 I think, is exactly the point. The state has not earned the right. You know, the state does not treat poor people, people of color, women, families, mothers, with the sort of respect 
necessary and provided the sort of services necessary to have earned the ability to take your child away with almost no due process and no access to services. It just is terrifying to me as a mother what is possible when the state doesn't value your life and doesn't doesn't think that you matter. And that's what we see, right? Yeah. This, dis- this disproportionately affects black mothers. It disproportionately affects poor mothers. It disproportionately happens in places in the South. And this is the same places that can't even provide basic ma- you know, maternal care for um, these women, where the, mar- the infant mortality rates are, are you know, off the charts and disproportionate to, to white mothers. So the answer is not for every parent who, is not, who has made mistakes or has even proven themselves to have some sort of systemic problems. The answer is not always that the state should take your kid. There has to be some other body or influence or ability for other interventions to happen before your child is, is taken from you. So those are some of the things that I think really matter for women to focus on. Last but not least, we have Stacey Abrams. These days, she's the founder of Fair Fight, which works for fair and free elections in Georgia and around the United States. Stacy spoke with us in 2018, back when she was a candidate for governor of Georgia. Here she is. I finished reading your book, Minority Leader, and it's great. And one of the things that I think really sets it apart from from this other kind of, you know, leadership book from somebody who is running into office is that usually this kind of advice comes from people who are really privileged. And so sometimes like the advice feels not relatable or, you know, you're like it's not lost on you that this person had way more power than you. But I was wondering if you could speak to why you wanted to write the um why you wanted to write this book specifically. I started out writing what I was thinking of as the leadership book. I was giving speeches and talks and having conversations with folks who saw where I was positioned. They saw that I was a minority leader, that I was a business leader, I was doing good things in the civic space, and I was giving advice, and I thought, well, I might as well write it down. And so the original goal was to write a leadership book, but my agent said, you're going to have to tell your own story, because people aren't going to just hear this advice if they don't have context. And, you know, what's been very different about my experience running for office is that I'm, I'm much more private than this uh, campaign has allowed. And so sort of my first foray into being more open was writing Minority Leader because my agent was right. There, there's no, my agent and then my editor, you know, there's no way to tell someone how to overcome barriers if you can't acknowledge the reality of those barriers. So there's a whole chapter on money because for those of us who are not to the manner born, Money plays a big part in everything. It, it has been used by some as a reason for me not to run, that my ambition is not permissible until I am financially independent. And for a lot of us, financial independence will only come when we have good leaders who understand the challenges. And even the, the very notion of ambition, uh, there are a lot of folks who push back on the bigness of my goals. And, and I, there's a more precise term, but really that's what they're, they're chafing at. And for me, I wanted to write about it, about how we dare to want to be more. But that for those of us who do not come from privilege, we got to work at it. And it's not just working at it to have it, it's working at it to figure out how to get it. And that's yeah. why the, the book is really designed to walk you through exercise. It's probably the only memoir that comes with you know, homework. 
<laughs> because I want people- a lot of homework, <laughs> but very good homework. But yeah, the, the point is, I don't want people to simply read about my story and think, oh, that's wonderful, but it doesn't matter to me or it doesn't right. relate to my life. I want people to know this is this is replicable. I'm not special in this way. I mean, I've, I have extraordinary parents and I have an amazing life, but there are real concrete things that you can do to harness your own capacity. And I think the best kind of leadership is leadership that says, I want more of you to join me, not hold me up and see me as special because I've done this. It's hold me up and use me as a beacon so you can get here too because I want company. Um, I love that. You talk a lot about this idea that, um, you know, that being an outsider is not a permanent impediment to success. And it's really, you know, like one, it's fascinating to think about you as somebody who is seen as a political outsider, but that is, you know, you like you've actually infiltrated this world and you're doing <laughs> You're doing really well, and I'm keeping every finger and toe crossed. <laughs> that, um, you know, you know that we will get to the to the other side of this. But I'm curious about like how you feel about that term, like outsider, because I think that for so many of us, that's the first barrier, and it is the strongest barrier to entry. It is disingenuous for those of us who are not part of the normative understanding of American experience to say we're not outsiders. Essentially. Everything we see, everything we do pivots around the white male experience. For good or ill, there, there's no value judgment. It just is. They get credit for creating the U.S. They get credit for lots yeah. of things. And so everything begins there. It is the one community that is judged independently of each other, not always a collective experience. That said, I don't think it's good or bad. And we often stop and start the conversation there. And that, that's irrelevant to me. I believe in acknowledging what is and then figuring out what can be. And so this is what is. Therefore, the rest of us for conversations of power, conversations of access, we don't start there. Therefore, we are on the outside of that thing. But that's okay. Because then the next conversation is how do we still get what they've got? Uh, because what they have is opportunity what they have is success mm. and you know not everyone who has those that phenotype has that but the reality is regardless of whether the barrier or the obstacle is based on race or gender or sexual orientation or region or language yeah it's going to be hard but if you there there are ways to circumvent it there are ways sort of guerrilla style warfare to undermine what is I see it as a beginning, so I understand the landscape. But then the, the goal then is to figure out, okay, how do you chart your own course? Unless we acknowledge where we start, then we spend all of our time fighting against shadows instead of building what we want. How do you not get completely beaten down every day by this, though? <laughs> because, because you get beaten down when you are fighting. Shadow boxing is exhausting yeah. because you, you're, you're flailing and you're working and there is no progress. I have found that when you acknowledge it, acknowledging means you know it's there. Accepting it means there's no way around it. I don't accept anything. I acknowledge everything. So I acknowledge that I am not seen as the person folks would pick out of a lineup for who would be the next governor of Georgia. And in fact, there were a lot of folks who did not see this as my, my opportunity. I acknowledge that. And if I'd stopped there, if I'd accepted it, then I would still be the Democratic leader in the House, hopeful that in the next 10 to 20 years, something would change. But by acknowledging it, it meant that I then knew I would have to cultivate different types 
of relationships and different types of support that I couldn't go to the powers that be to get what I needed, which is why I built a cadre of folks, young people that I've worked with for the last decade. Uh, I did that work, you know, in a different way. When I was, you know, when I wasn't able to get capital for my small business, when my business partner and I lost our business, we acknowledged that one of the challenges we had was that men weren't going to loan us that money because they didn't understand women doing manufacturing. So we created a new company, a fintech company, so that we could get money to women and people of color who could not have it. We, we actually do it for everybody, but we have an incredibly strong presence for women and people of color who need access to capital. I acknowledge the barrier, but then we went, to, we went around it and we created our own entity that solved the problem that others wouldn't solve for us. And we've now created a strong and thriving business that's helped create or retain thousands of jobs because of that. And we can do that in every facet of our lives, business, politics, personal lives. It's about acknowledging what is and then finding your way to get around it or get through it. Whew, I will see you on the internet. I will see you on the internet, boo-boo. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.